0: Thanks for downloading show 83 of the C-Suite podcast that's being recorded at the Cairn Lions International Festival of Creativity. Uh, my name is Russell Goldsmith, and uh, I am very excited to introduce our first guest of this episode because he is someone that I've been keen to interview from uh, the start of uh, doing this podcast series, a proper influencer in the world of advertising, Rory Sutherland, who is Vice Chairman at Ogilvy UK. Now, Rory is about to take the stage here in the main hall of the Palais to lead a session titled Make Advertising great again we are currently sat on the terrace just outside the media center overlooking Cannes, which i have to say is absolutely beautiful but as i said the the title of your uh, session rory make advertising great again it, it begs the question when did it stop being great
1: i think it's actually always had elements of greatness a few things have happened i think which make no sense in the advertising industry that i've worked in for 30 years one of which is Really, since about 1992, we haven't been paid on Media Commission. Creative agencies haven't been paid by Media Commission. And yet we still behave as though we are. And we limit our creativity and our insights to deploying them really in communication solutions. And I don't understand why we do that. Um, I think we fundamentally, if you think about consultancy, it's very clever calling yourself a consultant, because it more or less qualifies you to give advice in any field you choose. By contrast, I think there are hundreds of problems that we could solve with the kind of creative talent you see in this building. But we're never asked to solve them because people assume that, well, until I've got five million pounds to give to Rupert Murdoch, an ad agency wouldn't be interested in talking to me. And it strikes me as a very self-limiting belief. Now, if you go back to what you might call the Don Draper era of advertising, or more interestingly perhaps to really eccentric agencies pioneered by people like Howard Luck Gossage, what you can see was that as well as making advertising, the agency was a wider psychological advisor. It asked wider questions about the psychology of human behaviour. And indeed, back in the 50s, you probably would have had an agency psychologist as a resident part of your payroll. And what seems to have happened, a very strange thing happened in America in the 50s, after the Korean War, they got absolutely paranoid about brainwashing. Uh, there are films like The Manchurian Candidate, there was widespread terror about people who'd gone commie after being imprisoned by uh, the North Koreans, for example. And the whole question of what you might call unconscious influence became taboo. And so agencies who were making all their money making TV commercials at the time just effectively said, we don't need to be in that game, it's too reputationally dangerous, uh, we'll pretend it's all about making ads. And in the short term, that was probably a, a sensible defensive measure. The trouble is we lost something and we never got it back.
0: That's really interesting. I, I could sit and listen to this, this story for ages, but I know, I know we haven't got in, in, enough time to do that. But um, the, the session you're about to give is builders answering the questions about how you make your colleagues and clients think differently about advertising, restoring confidence to, to the advertising yeah. business. C- can you give some hints as to, to sort of what answers to these
1: questions you're going to be sharing then? Well, I suppose almost by accident, the, the topic that particularly fascinates me, and I was president of the IPA in, in London for two years, is how do you market marketing? And if you look at the dominant business culture that prevails not so much in, in heavy advertisers like, say, Unilever, but the prevalent business culture in finance, in uh, actually, to be absolutely honest, in most areas of business activity... Is a narrow one of kind of neoliberal economics. And the assumption there is that, per, if you think about it, the assumption of economics, and it really is an extraordinary assumption, is that people make decisions based on perfect information uh, in an atmosphere of complete trust. Now, in such a world, marketing wouldn't need to exist. And so people who see the world that way tend to see marketing as at best a necessary evil or a cost to be minimized and not as a source of value creation. And we also, I think, probably connive in this by using phrases like added value as if the real value is inherent in the product and marketing can add a little bit of magic pixie dust on top, but it remains an optional extra. Now, there's another school in economics which doesn't think like that at all. In particular, the Austrian School of Economics believes that value is entirely subjective and that you are as much responsible for creating value if you promote something effectively or you present it effectively as you are if you actually make it well. Uh, there's a great phrase which I will use in my talk. It's by Ludwig von Mises, and I use it every time, where he said there's no sensible distinction to be made between the value created in a restaurant by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. By which he means i mean he explicitly means by the analogy advertising and marketing being the man who sweeps the floor, if you have a fantastic Michelin starred quality food, but you try and sell it in a restaurant that smells of sewage, nobody will enjoy their meal, and in the same way, you can make a fantastic product, but if you don 't have enough impact on the human brain enough to make people understand it, make sense of it, and want it, that product remains worthless. And so they have a view which is much closer to mine, which is that value is created in the head, and therefore economics really should be subordinate to psychology as a discipline.
0: Well, I was going to say, that, I mean, this leads nicely onto the, the topic I wanted to ask you about, which is your behavioural science practice. But before I do that, just, just picking up on something you just said there about the trust aspect, because that, that's one of the biggest issues, isn't it, in the whole marketing
1: world at the moment, is this, this lack of trust that we have with brands. Well, I'll show a film uh, during my talk which shows a wonderful experiment by two Melbourne comedians where they get Ed Sheeran for the morning. Pop him on a stool in a peep show and try and sell an admission to a 30-second Ed Sheeran peep show, and nobody's interested. And I said that looks like a really fanciful example until you realise that that's pretty much true for the financial services industry. Doesn't really matter how good your product is if nobody trusts you, they ain't going to buy it. And I think there are whole areas. I, you know, I think packaged goods have held up fairly well. I don't think anybody. There's a crisis of confidence there, but I think in you know, a whole area. Of business activity, financial services perhaps being the most acute. The real problem in the industry isn't the nature of the product, it's the nature of the perception.
0: Well, well let, let's come on to that, that topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is your, as I said, your behavioral science practice that you formed within Ogilvy. I've seen this described online as the role or or their job is to uncover the hidden business and social possibilities which emerge when you apply creative minds to the latest thinking in psychology and behavioural science. So very grand. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're
1: aiming to achieve with that team? Uh, Very simple. Um, The only problem with the business uh, is that it's much, much easier to add value than it is to make money. And the reason for that is no client has a budget for a problem they don't realise they have. And so part of the time what we do is we go in and we say everything you're doing here makes logical sense. However, at stage one, stage five and stage seven, you're doing something which is psychologically catastrophic. Um, I'll give an example. There was a telephone call centre where people rang to cancel a subscription. And the first question they were asked was, can you please tell us why you're cancelling your subscription? We said, well... The problem here is if you get people to reiterate a list of negatives, winning them back is going to be doubly difficult. Why don't you start by asking the question can you remind us why you subscribed to this product in the first place? Now, there are a whole host of things which I think, in terms of what you might call objective measurement, uh, they might seem indistinguishable. In terms of psychological effect, in other words, in terms of meaning and the emotions they arouse, they can be absolutely opposite. There's a wonderful example by the anthropologist um, Pierre Bourdieu, since we're in France, I might as well quote him, who said that human emotion and economics don't really tally very well. So, for example, giving someone a present is a good thing economically. Returning a present, however, is not an act of generosity, it's an insult. And depending on the context in which something's done, the meaning and therefore the emotion we derive from it and therefore the behavior can be inordinately different, even if, ostensibly, there seems to be very little difference. So we call these butterfly effects. And an example of creating a butterfly effect, which I've yet been unable to do, but anybody listening who wants to do it, please let me know. I've long had the belief that if telephone call centers rather than making you wait for 15 minutes, simply offered to call you back. The entire emotional nature of that call would be different, the customer satisfaction would be vastly higher, and the opportunities for upselling or cross-selling would be inordinately greater. 100%. Because you're, well,
0: you're already frustrated, aren't yeah, you, by so, the time...
1: so when you make someone wait on, uh, online, you're treating them as a supplicant, which is you're, you're the person selling them something, but as a, you're making them wait. If you ring them back, you're treating them as a valued customer, and so although the nature of the phone call may change very little, the emotional resonance of that phone call might be completely different. Have you got any examples that uh, you could
0: share that you think you you know you can see this happening at, at, at the moment in you know relating to to
1: to what's going uh, on? A very simple one, uh, which uh, was advice I gave away for free. Someone from a political party rang up and said, "What's your general view on tax cuts?" To which I said. Well, psychologically, the way you deliver tax cuts is crap. Okay, now, let me explain very simply. I said, if you reduce the tax rate by 2%, people might notice a little bit in the short term. Uh, Within about two years, they'll simply become acclimatized to the new rate. They won't notice it anymore. I said, keep the tax rate the same as it is, but once a year pay them a rebate. Now you've actually got something which is enduringly valuable you also got a lump sum, and I would argue that a single annual lump sum payment is more opportunity-creating for the recipient than a reduction in a charge. And the final message I'd make, by the way, which is, which is an interesting one, is why don't you, before you pay the rebate, why don't you give people the option of donating 50% back to the NHS? Now, my argument there is very simple. Now, to an economist, there's no difference between writing a cheque for £500 to the NHS and receiving £500 less as a tax rebate. Those two things are basically economically identical. My argument, that of people like Dan Ariely as well, who are far more qualified to speak, is that actually there's an enormous difference between the two. Quite a few people would say, tell you what, just give me £500 and keep £500 for the NHS. And those very same people would never sit down and write a cheque spontaneously. It's a different kind of thing. And so understanding those nuances, uh, which don't really exist in physics or in conventional maths, they're highly nonlinear. understanding those nuances seems to be increasingly important to the success of business. I would argue, in fact, I'd take a very contentious view that most of the really successful tech companies owe their disproportionate success, not so much to the usual things that are told in the Harvard Business Review, but they stumbled on, as Uber did, with the map they stumbled on a bit of psychological magic trickery which just disproportionately appeals to the human mind. Yeah, yeah.
0: Tremendous. Right, I can't, uh, well, I felt I couldn't do this podcast interview without giving you a chance to plug your latest book, which is called Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Over to you.
1: Yeah, um, uh, it seems to be very popular with everybody who's read it. I can only give you social proof. as a reason to buy it. Um, It's um, an interesting book which I felt had to be written, and it's only incidentally a book about advertising and marketing. Uh, What it really is, is it's a book about the fact that when you determine that everything that's done must be consistent with economic logic, by the nature of economics you turn your back on the possibility of magic, and if you don't believe in magic you'll never find it. And my contention is there are lots of magical solutions out there waiting to be found, but People's need to give rational justification for everything they do is preventing us from finding them. Because in everything magical, there's something a little bit present that doesn't make sense
0: i assume available from all good bookstores and online amazon and the
1: rest of them uh, are you saying that amazon isn't a good bookstore no no oh sorry, i do that no no no, no that's when no, it's fine no, no. no it's available for, from all good bookstores online and off and i imagine quite a few rotten bookstores as well fantastic um i think we'll have to leave that in now <laughs> i think yeah Listen, Rory, uh, uh, we could keep
0: going um, all afternoon, but you have a presentation to give um, shortly here at Cairns. So for now, uh, Rory Sutherland,
1: thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
2: You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit c-suitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favourite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do.
0: So uh, next to join me is Carla Buzazzi, uh, Managing Director of Trend Forecasters, WGSN. And in fact, it's a welcome back to the show, uh, to Carla, um, as uh, she actually joined us two years ago here at Cannes. Uh, so thanks for agreeing to uh, chat to us again.
3: My pleasure. Should I be offended I wasn't asked on last year?
0: No, no, no. I think we like to mix it up every now and again. But, <laughs> but take it as a compliment that, that we then brought you back again.
3: OK, I'll take it that way. <laughs>
0: uh, now, I know you've had a busy week already, um, sharing a number of sessions in the main uh, festival hall. Any, any highlights so far
3: um oh my goodness there's been so many i think marie kondo i'm not a marie kondo f- fanatic i've never folded anything in my drawers but she was brilliant i thought that was phenomenal and actually the unilever ceo today talking about purpose uh alan passionately kind of calling to arms the way that businesses and brands should be uh building their brands and what they should be standing for that for me was a real highlight and then we just finished with John Legend, which was wow. yeah, pretty special as well. I'm
0: sure, I'm sure. Uh, now, tomorrow, you're back on stage uh, yourself presenting a session, and that's going to look at how people's behavior will evolve and what they will expect from brands in two years' time. Do you want to yeah, expand so on that?
3: every year at WGSN, we publish a future consumer report where we look uh, two years ahead at how people will be behaving what they'll be thinking, what they'll be feeling, uh, and therefore the way that brands and businesses should interact with them. And we look at some cohorts or um, uh, tribes, depending on what you want to call them, um, and we define those to help people really target the products that they might be selling to those people.
0: Do you want to talk us through what those tribes are? Yeah, why
3: not? So uh, this year we've got three tribes that I'll be speaking about. One's called the Compressionalists, and this is, you know, uh, time-poor individuals who are kind of constantly bombarded by all the expectations that come with modern life. And, you know, there's some kind of pretty stark statistics behind this in terms of rising depression rates... Economic impacts on on individuals at every age, actually. But there are some positive kind of conclusions that are coming out of that. And we do believe in in the years to come. You know, the rise of wellness, people making conscious decisions to cut down on the things that they try and achieve every day. So there's a there's a positive message, although that is a tribe that we have real concerns about. We've also got the kindness keepers. So these are individuals who have grown tired, basically, of the lack of action from governments and big corporates and some businesses and really trying to make an impact at a local level with individuals and this isn't kindness for the sake of kindness this isn't just making donations when it comes to you know holiday season this is about really fundamentally thinking about how you live your life and the impact that it has on others and then finally, the movement makers. And this is actually its quite a young young generation. With all our tribes, we try and look across generations. It's not about millennials versus Gen Z versus Gen X, but this is a younger demographic. And it's in countries like Southeast Asia, India and Africa, where we've got these rising youth populations, which is in stark contrast to Europe and uh, and Japan and the US, where we've got a big polarization because older people are getting older and they're having fewer children so we've got fewer young people but in those other countries uh, and regions that I just mentioned it's quite the reverse and there we are seeing young people who are taking action into their own hands uh, and driving change through their own entrepreneurship and their their own ways of giving back and supporting other young people so those are the three tribes I'll be speaking about
0: and so given we're, we're not that far away from 2021 what are yeah. the strategies you're recommending to brands to be able to engage with and, and market of so all these different So let styles? me just
3: I'll just pick a few um, as a kind of taster so one is direct, uh, adopt a direct consumer approach uh, so we've got these very successful direct consumer brands that have very refined offerings and for the compressionalist particularly they don't want endless choice they want you to make it easier for them so that's one piece of advice that we're giving brands we're talking about purpose a lot so this can't be about just standing for something for five minutes and then moving on to another cause this is really about thinking about how you as a brand make impact because that really will resonate actually with a lot of these groups it's also thinking about demographics or groups of individuals that have been largely ignored by brands so if we look at gen m so the rising muslim youth muslim population that's a that's a very I wasn't say group you can't even say group that's a huge population of people that are really being underserved by brands uh, so we're suggesting to kind of you know look out of your comfort zone look where other brands are missing out uh, and go there because there are people ready and ready and waiting to spend money with you.
0: And um, obviously, this is all part of of this new report. Where's the the best place for people to find out more about this?
3: So uh, if you go to any WGSN channel right now, at WGSN on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or on LinkedIn, um, we'll be publishing a bit.ly link where you can download the report for free.
0: Perfect. Uh, Now, before I let you go, um, there was something we talked about last time um, that we spoke, and that was about women in leadership roles. Now, since that time, you've become managing director of uh, WGSN. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, But at that time, you said, and I quote uh, people love talking about women in leadership roles, but not enough companies are making that happen. So, obviously, your own business aside, have you seen anything change in the last two years since we last spoke?
3: You know what, I was thinking a lot about this, and I think on the surface it feels like things have changed. But then I was listening to Cheryl Sandberg earlier and she was talking about the, you know, still the minuscule number of executive level positions that are held by women, the minuscule number of countries that are run by women, you know, and we've just lowered that number in the UK. Um so there's still a lot more to do. There's still a lot more to do. Um and I feel quite sad about that. Clearly I'm very, very passionate about it. I actually think it's more about equal opportunities necessarily than just putting women forward. It's making sure that everyone, whatever their background, whatever their upbringing, has a fair chance. Um, I've wrestled with the idea of kind of, uh, you know, positive affirmation and, uh, you know, forcing 50-50 shortlists. And I don't really like the idea, but I think we we have to. Um, So, no, it's... Again, we're talking about it. I do think there have been some positive shifts,
0: but there's still a lot more to do. Just out of interest, on that then, when you see companies announce, you know, our first female CEO. Is that is that a good thing or is that well it it shouldn't matter they should just no. get on with it. It's
3: it's un- unfortunately that doesn't <laughs> that's not going to get you positive headlines No that's now. what I'm thinking. Um you should just be cracking on you should have done that years ago. Uh, so do it don't make a fuss about it yeah. make the most of brilliant women who are out there who are uh, eager for these opportunities. Think about flexible working, ensure that roles are advertised, that people know about them. Encourage women within your organisations to go for roles that they might not be ready for yet. I've certainly done that throughout my career. Um, And I think, you know, doing all of those things, showing more role models uh, in, in positive roles. And I have to say, I think, you know, Canline have done a great job this year of ensuring that we have... Plenty of women up on stage. Uh, I think that's 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 a good step. That's what we need to show women of all ages, of all backgrounds, that those opportunities are there, and they absolutely should be going for them.
0: Excellent, excellent. Now, on a lighter note, um, final question. Um, this one is the final question. Again, going back to our last chat, um, two years ago, I asked you about trends to look out for, and you mentioned goat yoga of all things. <laughs> and I thought, what? And then, literally a couple of weeks later, I'm, I'm sat watching a. a, a BBC Breakfast and there's a whole report about it so um, so well done for, for picking that of trend of course um, putting you on the spot then what's the trend to look out for uh, for the next sort of well that was it, the next two weeks but yeah. obviously <laughs> the, the, next, the next few months let's say
3: okay uh, so one of our predictions is life doulas so you'll have heard of doulas who help with births Um, But life doulas are beginning to pop up in Los Angeles right now. And these are people who will help you with, you know, tricky relationship issues or tricky work issues, but with a, you know, healthy dollop of spirituality and and wellness on it. So life doulas.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Carly Buzazi, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We'll have you back again if that's all right.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. Two years time, right?
0: Definitely. And uh, good luck with the presentation.
3: Thank you so much. Endeavour Search and Selection offers international executive search and headhunting recruitment solutions to help you find the very top board level and senior talent across all disciplines. We also run sector-specific HR forums with HR directors from over 250 blue chip companies, sharing best practice and exchanging ideas and information on HR policy. If you need help managing a senior selection assignment, get in touch at EndeavourSearch.com.
0: Welcome back to the C-Suite Podcast here at the Eco House of PR at the Cannes Lions Festival and uh, joining me now for our final interview of this episode is Ellie Norman, Director of Marketing at Formula One. Uh, Now Ellie is speaking at the festival tomorrow on the subject of revitalizing an aging brand and that's in relation to F1 of course. So Ellie, this is a, a sport that has so much history and of course all the glamour that goes around it, yet... When Liberty Media acquired it, and I think I'm right in saying this, it had declining TV audiences and race attendances and sponsors dropping out. So what I thought would be good is just take us back a couple of years when you started at the organisation. Where was the sport at and what was your brief when you arrived?
2: So I think if we start, the sport has been around since 1950 and Bernie Exton had done an absolutely phenomenal job at growing the sport from 1950 into sort of what it is today. However, when um, Liberty Media acquired the sport in 2017, it was fair to say that actually the sport. Hadn't sort of progressed and um, stayed sort of relevant, I think, with where society um, and particularly sort of digital marketing communications was at. So my role coming into Formula One in 2017 was to establish and set up the marketing and communication function.
0: So there hadn't been anything Nothing. before then, right?
2: And it's it's. It is phenomenal to think that you can have a sport as widely um, recognized, I mean, awareness everywhere in the world, half a billion fans, and yet there'd never been any marketing or sort of PR of that sport. It kind of it had done its own, it had done it by itself. But fast forward, I think, to 2017 and where we are sort of today, there is fundamentally a role for sort of marketing and communications. And where I sort of started was really to understand what were the sort of um, perceptions of the sport and these sort of associations and actually what barriers were there with um, existing fans general kind of sports fans or, or sort of no fans at all because my job essentially is to work alongside the other directors within the sort of business um to really sort of grow the sport it's grow the fan base it's grow tv and digital audiences and it's grow attendance at races
0: so i guess this leads nicely on what you're talking about then uh, tomorrow so do you want to share some highlights of those
2: So I think my highlights of um, very much how I'm going to frame the talk on the terrace is very much around um, inertia. And it's very, very easy, I think, for big brands, big companies to essentially get frozen because of the success they've had the size that they're at um, that inertia sets in and there is this fear that the bigger you are the more you've got to lose but my sort of premise and what I will talk about is almost those sort of lessons that I've sort of certainly learnt over the years and applied in my time here at Formula One into that's almost the most dangerous thing that you can let set in because inertia will essentially lead to sort of decline and death and to apply some of that sort of growth hacker mentality of, you know, don't ask, just do it, and then sort of test, Um, move at speed, don't be sort of a purist, don't think you kind of always know what you're doing, and just sort of keep going. I think it's all about that sort of incremental gains and being able to set yourself free to try new stuff.
0: I suppose I'm that classic example someone who used to religiously sit down on a Sunday afternoon after lunch and this but I mean giving my age away here I'm going back into the days of you know Mansell and Senna and and Damon Hill and and, and the like I really fell out of love with the sport and to be honest just got bored so I, I guess you've got a challenge in winning people like me back but also new audiences as well
2: yeah and it is a challenge Um, I think one of the sort of biggest challenges is to step back and look at what you define as competition and the truth of it is what we came into was a motorsport rights organisation and when you look at the fans of today and the fans of tomorrow we need to sort of pivot that to being much more of a media and um, entertainment brand but to hold on to the DNA of the sport that soul of a race car Driver. And in order to do that, we had to sort of uh, break down those sort of barriers and essentially um, produce content that resonated with that sort of avid fan and that was still engaged in the sport but also attract people like yourself back to the sport so you are my light and laps fan and for me it's about how can we be packaging up some of the the content that happens on the racetrack, the exciting moments within the sort of races but importantly the human drama and the stories that are sort of um, happening within the sport day in and day out and going back to sort of this breaking this sort of inertia the first thing to really sort of do for us was don't cut corners at the start you have to 100% get under the skin of what you stand for and what those associations and perceptions are and actually what we we learnt from spending time on that up front was fans both old and sort of new want to know who are the drivers and the teams um, the people within the sport
0: yeah because that's what it used to be about the personalities
2: yeah, yeah. and that he, that human emotional connection what is driving that uh, essentially that obsession to win on track is what was very very motivating and the sort of essence or the notion of the best of the best it is that aspiration and desirability that you still want to come through and so we sort of will look to do that very much through a lens of man and machine pushed to their limits and often they will be opposing forces but i think in formula one they work in absolute harmony and that's actually where part of the sort of magic comes from and so it's being able to find and extract that content and essentially take it to you in formats that work for you in the right place at the right time because you may not have two hours to sit down on a Sunday to engage and to watch an entire race but it doesn't exclude you from wanting to be a fan of the sport and be able to connect with it it just needs to be in a way that works for you.
0: And so I guess one of the formats that you're sort of referring to then I'm aware you've got this new series on Netflix that you've been producing is that right?
2: Yeah so Netflix has been phenomenal success and you're right it is these new formats and how we sort of engage and when um when we were sort of going through essentially netflix are absolute experts at how to connect and tell long-form emotional stories um, and they they're the best in the business to do that with i would argue and say that if you want to watch the race we are the best in the business at producing The race footage but actually we need to sort of hand over that trust and that editorial um, storytelling to sort of netflix and so in 2018 they um followed us for the year came to a number of races and built up trust and relationships with the team and the drivers and as a result of that we launched a 10-part series on netflix which is called f1 drive to survive And it tells that emotional story. And the the beautiful thing about it is it focuses on the midfield. And so there's incredible narratives that you would never expect to be able to watch or to sort of hear. um, Because it focuses on the sort of midfield with um, the likes of Haas, our American team, Renault, Honda, sort of Red Bull. And it's those human insights that people have literally fallen in love with the sport again, or it's reached a new audience that we haven't been talking to, but Netflix with 300 million-odd members is able to get a new audience um, to start thinking about F1.
0: Well, I, I, I loved the, the Senna film that was out, what, probably a couple of years mm. ago now. It's, is it that similar kind of style
2: similar style and actually it's the same exec um, producer oh right okay well, there um, you that go. did Senna <laughs> Amy and this and it's been so successful I think both for Netflix and for F1 that we are uh, we've got the Netflix team back with us filming this year with a view to a second series in 2020
0: fantastic so with all this work that you're doing how are you actually going about measuring all the effectiveness of it all?
2: key question um <laughs> I mean, I'm
0: guessing if there's been no marketing before, they're going to now be judging you on on what you're doing. And
2: it's really sort of interesting because the way that the sort of commercial model works is clearly all revenues go into a pot and um, that pot gets distributed um, amongst Formula One, but also the sort of teams. And um, marketing is clearly an investment. So um, I like to think that we have to deliver results quickly before people start questioning what is it that marketing actually does so measurement's a great question and the way that we measure actually with everything we do is to look at what have we got planned first of all have we delivered on that plan and the sort of quality but then we start to look at actually what were those sort of outputs and so um, for me search is a fantastic measure for uh, measuring the sort of salience and how much are we in um, in sort of fans um, sort of mindset. And this year, search globally was up 17% um, organically compared to uh, 2018. And um, really, really successfully in the US, where it was up 104%. So that's a great metric for me. And then clearly, as you would expect, like sort of most other brands and companies, engagement rates on social. And we will always look at engagement rates alongside follower growth so that we've got the right type of fan that is engaging with us. Uh, view through rates on sort of video and then sort of ultimately being able to track that back into our long-term sort of brand metrics and trackers which we will sort of look at uh, twice yearly and um, subscription.
0: But what about linking to what we mentioned at the start about viewing figures and obviously people at at the races and sponsorship?
2: So all of that is 100% where the sort of ultimate uh, metrics and measures are And for me, it's actually how do we look at the uh, correlation between what marketing does into that. And even better if we can actually look at sort of causation as well. There are a few stages from I think engaging with marketing to then sort of buying a ticket, but it's putting in uh, the right KPIs along the way so that you can track and measure that sort of journey and how you're moving fans from being sort of primed and warmed up into sort of triggering a sort of reaction in the hope that they do watch it, um, start engaging on sort of social media content. Do they then watch highlights, qualifying, buy a ticket attend a race. So I mean it's a few steps in between but ultimately that's where it drives to.
0: Well I hope if there was no marketing department before I hope there's more than just you doing all that.
2: <laughs> I have been lucky to have um to have grown the team so we are uh, I would say we're a small lean team right. uh we're 22 Um, for marketing and sort of comms and work really closely with as you'd expect agency partners but then sort of uh, the what we call sort of promoter uh, marketing uh, teams sort of on the ground that will promote their sort of local race with a view to selling tickets to each of those
0: well listen good luck with all that good luck with your talk tomorrow Um, thank you but uh, for now ellie norman um, thank you so much for joining us
2: great to talk to you thanks russell
0: Well, that wraps up another episode for Can Lions. So thanks again to Eco for hosting us here at the House of PR for this uh, last interview. Uh, Don't forget, you can listen to all previous shows of the series on the website at c And you can subscribe to the feed on the likes of iTunes, Spotify and all your favorite podcast apps just by searching for the C-Suite podcast. And if you do, um, please do give us a positive rating and review because that helps us climb those business podcast charts. If you want to get involved in the show in any way, you can reach us using the contact form on the website. Or if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so via Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.